Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Lord, thank you for the beautiful snow that has fallen outside overnight, Lord, and just just the beauty of your creation. And Lord, uh, thank you for the uniqueness of, of every, every snowflake. And Lord, thank you for your handiwork right down to the very minute details. And Lord, I am thankful that, that you are God, that you are sovereign. And Lord, I am thankful that you are all-knowing that nothing in life, nothing in eternity catches you by surprise. And Lord, thank you that we can rest completely in your love, in your mercy, your grace, your holiness, your righteousness. And Lord, I pray this morning, we do pray for Josh and the family as they mourn the loss of a wife, of a mother. Lord, we pray for the body of Christ that, that has the opportunity to come around Him and come around the children and, and to be a comfort as You, Lord, are, are the God of all comfort. And Lord, we learn of comfort from You. And Lord, it's in You that we find strength for whatever difficulties we face in this life. And Lord, I am thankful that the sufferings of this present world are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And, and we look forward to that day. We long for that day. It's in your Son's name I pray, the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Last week, I, I keep making this mistake. Uh, I have this sermon that was supposed to take one week, and then I, I get through a small part of it, and I don't feel like I have enough to get through to make a full sermon, so I go back and I add something, and then I don't get through it again. And so this is the third week in a row that I've gone back and added to the sermon something to kind of tie things together, and then I feel like I'm not going to get there, but we'll try. Uh, and if we don't, it'll just be business as usual, so no surprise. But last week I talked about how our nation identifies itself as Christian. And by that, I mean culturally, when the Pew Research Council does their, their studies, they find that 77% of Americans identify themselves as Christian. And I put air quotes around that every time. So from here on out, assume air quotes. But 77% of Americans identify themselves as Christians. And in, in the last Congress, uh, what was it, 88% I think was the statistic, and before that, the Congress before that, was uh, 93% or 91% identified as Christian. And by that, generally what they mean is, I'm not Buddhist, I'm not Muslim, I'm not Hindu, I'm not something else, so by default I'm Christian. But as we talked about that, the fact that our culture overwhelmingly identifies themselves there's an overwhelming majority culturally and congressionally that identify themselves as Christians. And yet, as we saw in last week's message, we are not biblically grounded. We are not a, we are not a biblical nation. We are not a, an, an amoral nation. By any measurement, we are largely an immoral nation. If Christians and we've heard this said many times before, but if, if, if Christians were in America were placed on trial for our faith, we would be found not guilty. And in fact, in most cases, I think there, would be a, there, there wouldn't even be a trial due to a lack of evidence. And so I appreciate what Ben shared just about the fact that they're looking to 2040 and wanting to create Christ-centered individuals who are looking to change this world, to stand out in this world. I want to read to you um, just the opening. This is, I'm hesitant to, to share, <laughs> I don't always share the names of books that I read, because it, it's always important to, to read and be well read. It doesn't mean you want to give a platform to everybody that you read, and, and just you know, as an example of that, my wife 
this summer read, uh, or last summer read, uh, um, don't tell me, Michelle Obama's book. And and there were plenty of, of people who saw her reading that book and thought, oh, how could you read that? Why would you read that garbage? Well, it's important to understand why she thinks the way she thinks, why they do the things they do, why they say the things they say. And so it was actually very a very eye-opening book, and not that it's going to sway us or you know change our opinion on things, and but it, it was important to read. So I'm, I'm I will tell you the name of the book I'm reading. Uh, it was it's Matt Walsh, Church of Cowards. I may have shared it before. I don't agree theologically with Matt Walsh. Probably many of you wouldn't. Um, he is a a Catholic in in some form or another. Um, but having said that. This book is called Church of Cowards, and I think it's a really good summary of what anybody can see in the church today. And the opening chapter, chapter 1, begins with a verse from Jeremiah. Jeremiah 2.5 says, they followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. And the name of chapter 1 is Christians Not Worth Killing. Okay? So I just want to read the first... Uh, first paragraph, and then the first line, the, the second paragraph is one sentence. So I'll read the first two paragraphs. It says, There are still some Christians in this country who worry that heathen hordes may one day arrive on our shores, armed with guns and knives and bombs, to crush our Christian way of life and destroy the American church. They worry that Christendom will, will come under brutal assault by these hypothetical savages that they, clinging tearfully to their Bibles, will be dragged into the town square and beheaded in front of cheering, bloodthirsty throngs. They worry that we believers in the West may finally suffer the same persecution that those in the East have faced for 2,000 years. They flatter themselves. I think that is a very fitting description of much of Christianity today. In especially in light of the statistics that I gave you uh, last week, that 70, what I say, 77% of, of Americans identify as Christians, and that 88% of our elected representatives identify as Christians. And, and I, gave, I gave us three reasons for this lack of evidence of Christianity in our so-called Christian culture. And those three reasons are as follows. First of all, while many people, while many identify themselves as Christians, I would be willing to bet, <laughs> I know for a fact, that most of them are not saved. And I say that because Pew Research Council, as I've shared in the past, once did a study showing that in America, at best, 7% of Americans are truly saved, truly trusting in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ alone. So while 77% of Americans identify themselves as Christians, only 7% have truly trusted in Jesus Christ. And that's a statistic from probably 25 years ago. I don't know if they've redone that study since then. That's jaw-dropping to me. But I, I don't have time to spend on that if I'm going to get through this this morning. But many are not saved. Even though they identify as Christians, they're just, they haven't trusted in what Jesus Christ did for them on the cross of Calvary. And quite, quite frankly, if you're not following Christ and trusting Christ for that, you're not... You're not a Christian. I mean, that, that's what a Christian, that's the very foundational aspect of, of Christianity is trusting in what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross of Calvary. Now, to take that, that 7%, not the 77%, but the, of that 7% who are truly saved, how many of that 7% have then gone on to quench the Spirit? Who, who know where they're going to spend eternity but do nothing with what they've trusted in, of with whom they've trusted in. Not only do they, do they not attend church, but they live like the world. 
They live like everyone else. They may, as a Christian, change the world. But not for Christ. And certainly not to Christ. There have been saved individuals in this world who have gone on in their lives to do many immoral, amoral, and many who have gone on, sadly, to do wicked things. And so, many are not saved, many have quenched the Spirit, but ultimately, our culture of so-called Christians is biblically ignorant. As we saw last week in 2 Kings chapter 22, when you don't know what the Scriptures say, you are not going to be found obedient to what you are ignorant of. And if you do things, as so often biblically ignorant Christians do, Christians are, people who identify themselves as Christians are willing to do things. They're willing to, to serve. They're willing to minister. They're willing to, to be involved. And they're, they're busy doing things, and yet they're not doing the things that would make them obedient to God and His Word. They're just doing things because it feels good because it feels right, because it fits culturally in the, in the Christian culture. It just seems like or feels like the right thing to do, and yet it doesn't align with what the Word of God says. Again, because we are a culture of identifying Christians who are largely ignorant of what the Bible says. And if we don't know what the Bible says... I guess the best way to say it is what you know or don't know will affect your everyday life. And probably more than we care to admit. Because so many times I've heard, I've heard it said, I've heard Christians say, well, what does it matter? Or they'll say, well, I know all that stuff. But they really don't. They just don't want to take the time to know what the Word of God says. They feel like they know enough to, to get by. They know enough to, to get along. They know a lot. They know enough to fit in in the church. And they don't care to admit how damaging, maybe they don't know how damaging and detrimental biblical ignorance is to their life. The church doesn't care to admit how dangerous biblical ignorance is to the health of the church. It is of utmost importance that we as believers are not biblically ignorant. But I would say that it's also of utmost importance that, that, that not only are we not biblically ignorant, but that we are active in the church. It's not enough just to know a bunch of things, to know what the Word of God says, to know all the details, to to. Know every, to be able to cross every theological T and dot every theological I if we're doing nothing. I had you open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And I want to point something out to you here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. First of all, before I read this, we need to understand that what we face today in this world is evil. We are facing the very face of evil. Satan is, is hard at work. And, and again, I've said this, and I'll continue to say this. When I say things like that, sometimes our preconceived notions are to think he's talking about, and we, you know, we've just come through this very heightened political period. I, I'm not pointing fingers at any one political party. Um, I, I think we are, we are facing... Uh, an onslaught of evil. I think evil is in power in our country. And that does not, that evil is not singled out to a specific political party. I think there is wickedness and evil at work uh, to, to shut down the church, to, to close in on Christianity and, and to box in Christianity. And I think now more than ever, it is important that, that the Christians and that the church, that believers stand individually and stand corporately and boldly proclaim the truth against 
a wicked, evil culture that 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 is that is litigating and and uh, passing into law very anti-biblical, anti-Christian laws. And and listen, we should not be surprised by that. Why would we be surprised by that? You know, we we've had relative privilege in this nation for hundreds of years. But when you look at the grand timeline of history, America is an anomaly. It it, it is a unique anomaly in time. And quite frankly, there is no mention of of America in this book. (laughs) And that leads me to one conclusion. You know, that that, uh, when it all comes down to it, we're not there in the end. But that doesn't mean that we as Christians in America shouldn't stand and stand boldly and stand and carry the cross forward. So anyway, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1 says, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled neither by spirit nor by letter nor by nor by word nor by letter as from us as that the day of Christ is at hand first thing i want to point out here and i'm going to point this out like four or five times just in this chapter alone it is important that we as christians stand for the truth what was it there in verse 2 that had had caused so much problems for the thessalonians they had gotten distracted. I, I used this passage, I think, last week or the week before to point out the fact that it is so important for us as Christians that we cite original documents. Whether that's the Constitution, whether that's the Declaration of Independence, whether that's an article we've read, don't quote something just because it was on Facebook. You know, Go to the original document. If it's an executive order, go to the executive order. Whatever it is, quote the original source. And, and here... These Thessalonians had been distracted by false documents. They had received word. They'd received a letter. They had received some false information that the day of Christ was at hand. It is important for us as Christians, as individuals, and corporately as a church, that we stand for the truth. Let me see if that plays out as we go on down through here. Verse 3, let no man deceive you by any means. Again. Know the truth. For that day shall not come except there come a falling away first and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was with you I told you these things? And now ye know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. Now let me summarize those couple verses. There's a day coming when the Antichrist is going to be revealed. But that will not happen while those who have trusted in Jesus Christ are on this earth. You see, we are the back pressure. When it talks there about in my Bible, it says, letteth, will let. <coughs> Excuse me. The, the Greek word there has the idea of, of hindering. And it's the same Greek word that's used in verse 6. And now ye know what withholdeth. What holds back? What's the back pressure? What's the delay? All right? We know what withholdeth. Well, that's us. That's the body of Christ. The body of Christ is the thing that is, is withholding that from taking place. We are the back pressure. But we are not much back pressure if we don't know the truth and stand for it. Are we? And so it's important that we stand for the truth, but we can't stand for something if we don't know it. And much of Christianity today has fallen prey to this entertainment mentality where they're not, they're not really getting into the meat of the word. They're not learning the truth. They're not being fed the the, the important things that, that matter in God's Word, the, the deep things of Scripture that are important. And so therefore, the church is, 
is filled with Christians who are biblically ignorant. The church is filled with Christians who have a very shallow understanding of the truth. And they can't, they're not able to stand for the truth if they don't know the truth. And so these Thessalonians, he's telling them, listen, don't, don't be deceived. Know the truth. We are the back pressure. That's verses 6 and 7. Verse 6 and 7, let me read 7 again. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work 2,000 years ago. Nearly 2,000 years ago when this was written. The mystery of iniquity, iniquity was already at work. Only he who now letteth will let. He who hinders will hinder. He who delays will delay until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed. And wicked in my Bible is capitalized. Whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. Did you see it there in verse 9? See, one day after we are taken out of the way, the Antichrist, that's who the wicked is, he's going to be revealed. But it says there in verse 9, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. And that word lying could be used to describe the power and the signs and the wonders. It applies to all of them. That's why it's important that we today stand for the truth. Because one day Satan or the Antichrist is going to come and deceive a lot of people with lies. Goes on down through here, verse 12. That they all might be damned who believed not the truth. You know, to believe it not, you had to have the opportunity to hear it, right? But some people are sadly going to choose to not believe it. Because the end of that verse says, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Do we see that today? Do we see a culture that has pleasure in unrighteousness? Do we see people today who are rejecting the truth? Sure we do. Does that mean we just stop sharing it? Verse 13, but we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Some will hear the truth and believe it. Sadly, some will hear the truth and decide that they would rather pleasure themselves in unrighteousness. But that doesn't mean we should ever stop sharing the truth. We need to, to stand up. We need to know the truth first of all. And then we need to stand up and proclaim that glorious truth to a lost and dying world. I think as Christians, not only is, important, is it important that we are biblically, spiritually, healthy Christians. Biblically, spiritually, healthy believers. Biblically, spiritually, healthy saints. But I also think it's important that we are involved in a biblically, spiritually, healthy local church. But that brings up a very important question. What exactly is a biblically, spiritually, healthy local church? That's a loaded question, isn't it? Because there's lots of, lots of people, lots of pastors who would, who would probably go a million different directions with this, but it's interesting to contemplate well, what makes a church healthy? Because from, from an outside perspective looking in, people would look at, at some churches from the outside looking in and say, well, look at that church. Look at everything they do. Look at their footprint in the community. That's a biblically, spiritually healthy church. And yet, if you got into the inner workings of that church, you would find, you might find a, train wreck. Appearance isn't everything, is it? So the question then is, what, what, makes a, what makes a spiritually healthy, a biblically spiritually healthy church? Turn with me to Philippians. 
Philippians chapter 4. We're going to do this in reverse order. Build to a crescendo. Philippians chapter 4. We'll start at the back of Philippians. Listen, the, the, the Philippian church, the church of Philippi was, is a great example of a biblically, spiritually healthy church. Based on what though? What was it that made Philippi such a, such a healthy church? Philippians chapter 4, verse 10 says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein you were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Verse 14, Notwithstanding you have well done, that ye did communicate with my affliction. Now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. For even in Thessalonica ye sent once and again unto my necessity. I think for a church to be a biblically, spiritually healthy church, if we're looking at the example of the church at Philippi, I think one of the first things, or maybe not the first thing, one of the things that should be evident in a healthy church is a giving heart and an outward focus. I think if you want to see a dead church, find a church that looks at themselves, that's focused inward, that doesn't give to anything except whatever they're doing for themselves. I, I've said this for as long as I was a youth leader 25 years ago. I think one of the biggest problems with youth ministries today is that youth groups are, are inwardly focused. It's, 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 it's bent on entertain, entertainment. It's focused on entertainment. Listen, <laughs> children, I know this will shock you, children, and it, it, I think it sometimes it grows to a crescendo in their teenage years, and then they reach adulthood, and they learn to hide it, is they are very self-absorbed, self-focused, inwardly focused individuals. Now, did you notice what, how I said that? Children are very self-absorbed, self-focused individuals. And then when they become teenagers, they become somehow even more self-absorbed, self-focused, self-caring individuals. And then they turn 18, 19, 20, and they just learn to disguise the fact that they're inwardly focused, self-absorbed people. Know anybody like that? Anybody else here ever find themselves being self-absorbed, self-focused? And it's great. You get married. And that's like God starts to rip the band-aid off. Because you realize... For all these years, you've been self-absorbed, self-focused, and your spouse, you just married somebody who is self-absorbed and self-focused, and now you have to love each other. And, you know, that starts to peel the Band-Aid off, and then you have children. And if you think having them one at a time really shows how self-absorbed and self-focused you are, have twins sometimes. Because, you know, when you have them one at a time, this is how the conversation goes in the middle of the night. Who just said that? Yeah. Huh. It's your turn. That's because in that moment when you're tired, you're being self-absorbed, self-focused, looking out for number one, and then you have twins, and there's no such thing as it's your turn. And tell, let me tell you something. There is not enough on television in the middle of the night on any channel to keep you awake when you are sleep deprived. And there is not a Navy SEAL in the world who can outdo a mother or father of twins. We know sleep deprivation. We have survived. Ah, where was I? Rabbit trailed. Anyway, a, a church, a, a healthy church needs to be outwardly focused. It is essential. If you are not outwardly focused, you are not a healthy church by any parameter. If you are not a giving church, and that doesn't mean it has, you could be the, you know, you could be dirt floor poor, 
but you give of yourself, you give of your time. Because that's what you God has given you to give with. But a church that is healthy must be outwardly focused and have a giving heart. Philippians chapter 2 verse 5. That is a result of this. Philippians 2 5. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. A healthy church has the mind and attitude of their Savior. If you were to go on down through there and read verses 6 and 7 and 8, you would find that that means that you are a surrendered church. You, you have a servant attitude, a servant spirit. Where does that come from? That comes from Philippians 1.27. Only... I, I'm not going to get through all these notes. Uh, I love... I love that every word of God is inspired. And I love when God speaks to us in absolutes. Love it. It, Leave no doubt. Leave no question in anybody's mind how God feels when He says only. What does only rule out? Everything else. Only let your conversation, only let your conduct, only let your life be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Only let your life make the gospel attractive. Isn't that what it's saying? There is no room in our lives whether you are a five-year-old Christian, an 18-year-old Christian, a 90-year-old Christian. It doesn't matter. Only let your life, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Everything about us should be to make the gospel attractive. It's a pretty bold statement, don't you think? Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs that ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now let me put that all together. Only, that's singularly, nothing else. It rules out everything else out. Everything we're doing should make the gospel attractive, right? And how is it that everything we are doing in life makes that gospel attractive? He's writing to these, these Philippians. He said that whether he comes and sees them or, or just hears about it, that they are, that he may hear of their affairs, I may hear of your affairs, that they are one, that their testimony is one. And, you know, when you hear of what Christians are doing somewhere else, that's their testimony, right? And what he's saying here is, listen, whether I come and see you or I just hear about it, What I hear is that you are one in your testimony. That you are are standing fast in one spirit. So he says, "I I want you to be one in your testimony. I want you to be one in your standing. With one mind that we should be one in thought. Striving together for the faith of the gospel. That we are one in thought message a healthy church the joke has always been the church that gets along is the church with one person in it right but you know that's not god's design is it god's design for the local church the healthy local church is the local church that everything they are doing is making the gospel attractive because they are one in testimony one in their standing, one in their thoughts, and one in their message. They are singularly focused and driven in that purpose. Which brings me, I said we were working this in reverse order. So you have this church, it's healthy because they're outwardly focused. But they became outwardly focused and giving 
because they had the mind of Christ. They had, they had surrendered their, their mind to Him. And they had the mind of Christ because, I guess I should be doing this in reverse order, right? It's one thing they teach you in Bible school. You've got to do everything backwards for myself so that it's the right direction for you. So you are, you are one, you are, you're, I'm sorry, you are giving. You're outwardly focused. And you're outwardly focused because you have the mind of Christ. You surrender to Him. As a church, you've surrendered. Individually, you've surrendered to Him. To His will. To His leading. To His direction. And you are, you, you surrendered because you are singularly focused on the gospel. You are, you are, you are, you are giving, you are, you are, I'm sorry, you are one in, in, in your message. You are one in, in thought. You are one in your standing. You're doing all of those things. You are, you are singular. You're united together. Why? Philippians chapter 1, verse 9. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. More and more in knowledge and in all discernment. You see, a healthy church begins a healthy church begins with the systematic preaching and teaching of the Word of God. And it is out of that knowledge, it is out of that, it is as we come out of the depths of biblical ignorance and get into the truth of the Word of God and the truths of the Word of God, it is out of that that Scripture renews our mind daily and as, as, as God renews our mind, as the Spirit renews our mind through the pre systematic preaching and teaching of the Word of God, we surrender. We, we, we stop living like the culture and stop living like the world and stop thinking like the world and we, and we take on the mind of Christ. And as we, as we take on the mind of Christ and as it's systematically taught we take on the mind of Christ and I take on the mind of Christ and you take on the mind of Christ and you take on the mind of Christ and you take on the mind of Christ. And as we come together corporately, we become one. Our, our only focus is to make the gospel attractive. And we become one in, in, in our thoughts. We become one in our standing. We become one in our message. We come, become one in our testimony. And out of that unity. That has come as a result of the systematic preaching and teaching of the word of God. That has made us, that has made us like Christ. That has given us the mind of Christ. That has brought us together and unified us. As a body of believers around the truth of the word of God. It is out of that. That we go out and our focus becomes outward. You see, sadly, there are a lot of churches that are over here trying to do this and that and the other thing. And by all outward appearances, they seem healthy. But you start to get under the, the surface and you realize there's not unity. And you realize there's not unity because they don't all have the mind of Christ. And you realize that they don't all have the mind of Christ because the Word of God is not being taught systematically. You see, we live in a culture that stands at the microwave and complains. We, we, we live in a culture that stands at the fast food line and tells the person in front of us who can't make a decision to get out of line because they're not ordering fast enough and our food's not coming fast enough. And so, as Christians, we want the the fast, we want fast food Christianity. We want a 15 minute feel good message from the pastor. Sing a bunch of songs. Give, them the, give the opportunity to serve in some way doing something. Because it makes us look good and it makes us feel good. But we've never gone back here. To be taught or to spend time studying 
systematically God's word. And so we live in a culture that is biblically ignorant. We live, we are surrounded by churches filled with biblically ignorant people who are doing all these things. And I'll say this, it's really easy to make it look good when life is going well. But we live in a culture, first of all, we live in a sin-cursed world that has consequences. The consequences of sin have an impact on our world. And our culture is crumbling. And there is a, there is a concerted effort to silence the church and to silence Christians. And I know this is getting ahead of myself because I have that message coming. But when that pressure comes, you are going to quickly see which Christians and which churches built their foundation on biblical truth. And which Christians and which churches gave the appearance but did not. You know how I know that you will know really quickly when that happens? Because when it happens, it won't be the first time that it's happened. Go back and read about the church in World War II in Germany. Go back and see what happened. Watch how the church folded when push came to shove. But there were a lot of Christians in World War II who went into concentration camps and were gassed alongside the Jews and others. But you know which Christians it was? It was the ones who were standing when everything went sideways. Because a lot of the church, a lot of the church in Nazi Germany went along with Hitler. They weren't a problem. And as I showed you three weeks ago, when we went and looked at that document, those who stand against social justice, those who stand for absolute truth are enemies of social justice. Guess who that is? That's, that's you, that's me, that's us. Anyway, it is important that we know and are grounded in biblical truth, that we are not biblically ignorant. So far we've looked at and, and this, all this came as a, as a, we were in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, where Paul writes to the Thessalonians, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren. And I, I realized when I was looking at that and studying that, that there are six times in the Word of God that God talks about not being biblically ignorant. All six times, excuse me, all six times appear in Paul's epistles. And so far, we've looked at, at two of those. Um, one of those, uh, they, the first two we looked at were in Romans. Um, God does not want us to be ignorant of the spiritual battle. And the second one was God wants us to not be ignorant of the mystery. He wants us to understand this dispensation of grace in which we are living. But what else is it that God does not want us to be, to be ignorant of? He wants us to, He wants us to be grounded. He wants us to... To know the truth. But he's very specific. He gives six areas. Don't be ignorant about this. 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 Six six times he uses that phrase or talks about in one verse not being ignorant brethren. And I pointed out the fact that he mentions the word brethren. He's referring to saved individuals. So these are people who have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I pray that each of us have trusted in what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross of Calvary for our salvation. And that makes us brothers in Christ. But are we ignorant, brothers? Or are we systematically learning the Word of God? And I think that's the beauty of when you study these six passages, you realize that God desires his saints, to know 
the Word of God. Not just, not just part of the Word of God. He wants us to have an understanding of all of the Word of God. And so, the first two things, the first two we looked at was, know the spiritual battle. Well, that pretty much is all-inclusive when it comes to Scripture, doesn't it? I mean, we can go to Genesis, what? Genesis 2, Genesis 3, the serpent comes on the scene. You have spiritual battle right from the beginning. And let's see, where do we find the, the cessation of spiritual battle? I'm pretty sure you read about that long about Revelation 22, 21, don't you think? So that pretty much, if, we're, if we need to understand the spiritual battle in, 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 from eternity past to eternity future, from time past to, to the end of time, then we need to be familiar with Scripture from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21, right? Beyond that, he wants us to know specifically about this, this mystery. We were in Romans chapter, uh, was it Romans 10, where it talks about uh, not to be ignorant, brethren, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery. And he goes on to talk about that. We need to understand what that mystery is. Talk about this dispensation, <coughs> excuse me, of the grace of God in which we are living. All right? There's another one. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I find this one interesting. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. By the way, that was dry baptism right there. Um, the only water involved in that baptism was pushed aside by God. All right. So they were all baptized into Moses and in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. It seems to me as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that God would desire us to not be ignorant of Israel's history. Isn't that what he's talking about there? He's talking about I would not have you ignorant how that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Well, the only place I know to read about that is in the Old Testament in Israel's history. Well, this brings up a very important question. Why would God want us today, all these thousands of years later, to know about Israel's history all those thousands of years ago? I mean, let's just lay out a few parameters here so we're all on the same page. We're not Israel. We're not spiritual Israel. In fact, when I read Scripture, I also see that we have different promises. Israel was promised some amazing blessings, yet future, that are not the blessings that God promised to me. And it's not that Israel's blessings are better or ours, ours are better. It's just that God promised them something and He promised us something else. So why would we care about Israel? Why would we go back and read about Israel? Why would it be so important to know the Old Testament? Now this is important for, for, for a couple reasons. Listen, there, there are many who are guilty of this in different ways. Um, brothers in Christ who spend their entirety of their lives on only the letters in the Bible that are written in red. Do you think that's healthy? To only focus on the Gospels, to only focus on the red letters? And listen, I've, I've talked to people. There are, there are others who will spend every waking hour only studying end times. Is that healthy? No. Now, is there anything wrong with studying the Gospels and the red letters? No. Is there anything wrong with studying Revelation? No. What about those who say, you know what? We should only study Paul's epistles. I don't think that's healthy either. I don't think any of those are healthy. Healthy. 
In fact, the Apostle Paul himself said in Acts 20.24 that he taught, he taught all the counsel of God's Word. And again, there's God through Paul speaking in absolutes. What does all mean? All. It, Revelation or Genesis 1.1 to Revelation 22.21, right? All of it. From the Garden of Eden to the maps. All of it. And, and listen. It is important. We live in the dispensation of the grace of God, right? We're not under the law. We're under grace, right? Can you truly understand the grace of God if you never took the time to understand the law? You want to appreciate the grace of God today? Go read Leviticus, the book of barbecues. What did, what did Moses' wife Zipporah, what did she call Moses' religion? Who said that? Bloody. Your bloody religion. As she circumcised her own son to keep him from being killed by God. Because Moses hadn't circumcised him. Your bloody religion. You want to appreciate the grace of God today? Go study the Old Testament and understand the, the law of Moses. It'll give you a whole new perspective on the grace of God today. But in the context here, why is it so important? Why would God want us to go back and study Israel's history? Verse, verse 5, 1 Corinthians 10.5, But with many of them God was not well pleased. Well, this is interesting. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples. What does that mean? They didn't do a lot of good things and we could learn something from them. Right? Isn't that what he's saying? To the intent we should not lust after evil thought, evil things, as they also lusted. Oh, so we go back and study Israel, maybe we'll learn not to lust like they did. Right? Neither be, be ye idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So if we study Israel, maybe we'll learn not to be idolaters, right? Now, I'm getting ahead of myself, but I am so glad today that we don't have idols. There, there is a serious message coming. And it's, it's going to seriously step on some toes. Just remember, when I preach, it stepped on my toes first, all right? But I think one of the biggest idols we have today in this country is the United States government. We, we, don't, we don't worship, you know, stone statues or wooden statues overlaid in gold. But I think, and the more I've been, I told you, I'm, I keep reading things and drilling down into things, and I tell you, it's going to take me a while to put this together, but the more I read and the more I study and the more I think about these things, the more I realize that even as Christians, and maybe even Christians worse than others, have made our government and our government leaders and our health care and our health into idols that we lift far higher than we ever lift God. And I know that's going to step on some toes when I share that. But I, I am more and more convinced <laughs> that I'll just I'll let it go with that. But I am more and more convinced that we, myself included, have in some way, to some way, to some degree, far more than maybe even we're willing to admit, have made it into an idol and lifted it far too high. And, and that may sound jaded and that may sound even um, overstated, but just, just wait till we put it all together. I just trust me. Well, don't trust me. Please don't trust me, but... Just accept what I'm saying for right now till we get to it. So anyway, um, it's important that we should know Israel history so that we don't lift up idols as they did. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication, verse 8, as some of them committed. Obviously, we haven't been studying Israel enough. When you look at our culture today that is filled with fornication. Ah, 
as some of them committed, and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. And let us neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these all these things happened unto them for examples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Verse twelve. Wherefore. Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. There hath no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able. But will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. Wherefore my dearly beloved flee from idolatry. All of that God wants us to not be ignorant of Israel's history. Why? He spells it out there. There's all these ways that Israel fell, that Israel crumbled, that Israel succumbed to the temptations. And he says, maybe by studying Israel's history, by knowing Israel's history, maybe, just maybe, you'll be able to flee those very things that that captured them. So, just as spiritual warfare no the spiritual battle covers everything in scripture well let's see what does knowing israel's history what part of the bible would that cover well that would cover genesis to the beginning of acts part of acts yeah and well that'd be the history and then you know if you look at the future you could also get back into that with with some of the books at the end of the bible all right let me do one more um, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. What, it, what else is it that God wants us to know? He wants us to know the spiritual battle. He wants us to understand this, this dispensation of grace in which we are living. He wants us to understand Israel's history. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. So God wants us to know. He does not want us to be ignorant about spiritual gifts. Now spiritual gifts, these these sign gifts, served a purpose. There was a purpose to them. God gave them for a very specific reason in a very specific time. But let me just say this. Verse 1 says, concerning spiritual gifts, I would not have you ignorant. I think if I were to list these in order of ignorance, I would think this one is probably one of the ones in which Christians are most ignorant. And so, uh, let me just finish with verse 31, the, the end of that chapter. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant of these, but he finishes the chapter with these words. After talking to them about them, he says, But covet earnestly the best gifts, yet show I unto you a more excellent way. And that more excellent way is again mentioned in chapter 13, verse 13. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. I show you a more excellent way. And love is that charity is that more excellent way. We will come back to that next week. We will get to the other three. But listen, just what we've seen so far, God doesn't want us to be biblically ignorant. He wants us to know His Word. And even just in the three we've mentioned so far, it is pretty much all-inclusive of God's Word. It leaves out nothing. Israel's history is a vast portion of Scripture. This dispensation of grace in which we live covers another vast portion of Scripture. The spiritual battle covers all of Scripture. God desires that we are not ignorant of His Word. He desires that we know it. And not just have a cursory understanding of it. He tells us to study. And the word for study in 2 Timothy 2.15 is is to, to work over, to sweat over, to pour over. And I'll just be honest, that probably doesn't happen a lot across Christianity. Much of Christianity today is is devotional. We just want a quick devotion. We just want something to read. God says, 
study. And listen, if you want to be grounded in the truth of the Word of God, if you don't want to be deceived by Satan, if, if you want to have the mind of Christ, if, if you want to, to be unified, if you want to, to uh, be outwardly focused, listen, it has to come from an understanding of God's Word. To know God's Word. To know Him and to know His Word. And that only truly happens when you study it. And you read it. And you meditate upon it. And you memorize it. And those are four things that are not, that don't happen nearly as much as they should in the lives of Christians today. But if we want to, if we want to see a revival in the church, it has to come by getting back into God's Word. Immersing ourselves in the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this morning. Lord, I pray this morning that as we spent this time together, Lord, that we were challenged. Challenged to know Your Word. To truly immerse ourselves in the study, the reading, the meditation, and the memorization of Your Word. So that Your Holy Spirit, through Your Holy Word, might transform our lives. To make us, and mold us and make us into the ambassadors and servants that You would truly desire us to be. It's in Your Son's name I pray, the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.